farmer stood with his dog overlooking his fields. Behind them in the grasses peered a small brown rabbit, and above flew a lark. The farmer looked across the field and saw cows, milk, provisions for his family, a new car. The dog saw frustration because wild things could so easily hide and escape his chase. The rabbit saw security. To the lark flying overhead, the field was home. While we may all be looking at the same thing, standing in the same story, the lenses we look through to interpret that story are vastly different for everyone. Join us today as we discuss the fourth step in reframing your story, understanding lenses and being able to swap them out every now and again. Stories are our lives in language. Welcome to the Love Your Story podcast. I'm Lori Lee, and I'm excited for our future together of telling stories, evaluating our own stories, and lifting ourselves and others to greater places because of our control over our stories. This podcast is about empowerment and giving you, the listener, ideas to work with in making your stories work for you. Story power serves you best when you know how to use it. Okay, today we are on the fourth podcast episode in a five-part series, The Five Steps to Reframing a Story. Welcome to step number four, a discussion about the lenses you look through and how they determine what you see, and considering the lenses others look through as well. You've heard of putting on rose-colored glasses because it changes the way you see things, makes the world look a little brighter. The way you see the world is certainly affected by different tinted glasses. Well, today we are discussing, first of all, the fact that we metaphorically wear lenses and that these lenses form how we interpret what goes on around us. And second of all, understanding that we can swap lenses if we need to. Choose a lens, any lens. The lens you look through determines what you see, how you interpret, and often whether you are happy with the story you are creating or the story you have lived. Understand this concept and you begin to realize that your story can change. Like magic, we conjure our stories from the ether of thought. The stories we tell ourselves about ourselves form from numerous things, one of which is a set of criteria and lenses that we have adopted, usually as fact, right and wrong, from our culture and family, from our religion and the things expected of us because of our gender, our economic status, our social standing, our race, education, or political beliefs, sexual experience, sexual preference, moral codes. There are any number of these lenses that we each individually look through when we engage in any situation. Picture, if you will, a pair of glasses with maybe a dozen lenses stacked on top of one another for us to look through. Everyone has a pair of these glasses that they're wearing. These are the lenses through which we see right and wrong, through which we judge our own stories, through which we judge the stories of others. Everyone around us is also wearing a set of these thick glasses, only a different set with different lenses. An example of a lens. Brock DeCher in his book, 21 Genres, points out that because of his age, he's older than draft age, and his education, he's a university professor, so he has enough education to compare wars from history to current situation. Um, both of these are lenses his education and his age, but because of these, he is bound to think differently about war than perhaps an uneducated 19-year-old man. 
Lynn Langer Meeks and Carol Jukes Austin in their book, Literacy in the Secondary English Classroom, call these lenses the cultural eye. These beliefs or ways of seeing the world start solidifying themselves from the time we are children, learning and interpreting our world. It's important to realize that we wear these lenses and that everyone around us has on a different set of lenses. Next, it's important to recognize that not only do we wear these lenses, but also how our lenses create our stories, the ones we tell to others and the ones we tell to ourselves. Because when we can start to recognize that there are perspectives beyond our own and create possibility beyond one way of seeing things, then we step to the next level. Here's a clip from my earlier interview with Lynn McNeil, professor of folklore up at Utah State University, where we were talking about these same concepts of looking at other people's stories through their lenses in order to see new ways of living our own lives and our own life stories. There are sort of two routes you can take. And you know, one is we are told, like you just said, all of those things, all those expectations, the way that a life narrative looks. We are taught that from the day we're born in a variety of different cultures and forms and with a variety of different elements. And when our story doesn't match that expected narrative, we either have to forge our own paths or we have to find new models. We have to look at other people's stories so we can broaden our view and say, okay, my story doesn't match that of the people around me, but there are other people in the world whose stories might give me hints for how I can reshape my own experience. So rather than simply being a failure at being this one thing, I might be a success at being something else, at, at fitting a different model, at taking another path. And I think even when we're not doing a bad job, even when we're not failing at being one particular model, there might be all these other options for, for looking at our experience, for narrating it, for shaping ourselves that might just be more fun or more enjoyable or more applicable or more beneficial to us. And we're not going to know about those unless we're listening to a really broad range of people's stories. That's how we find out what our options are. Let me share an example of two cultural lenses. A friend sent me an article called Two World Views, Romantic and Classical. The article starts out with the description of what Romanticism is, quote, a movement of art and ideas that began in Europe in the mid 18th century and has now taken over the world. It's hard to go far on almost any issue without encountering a dominant romantic position, unquote. This is how it starts out. I bring this up in conjunction with the cultural eye because Romanticism and Classicism are schools of thought created by cultural lenses and adopted as ways of approaching life. The power of these approaches is hard to overestimate because they create the very basis for which we make our life decisions and thus create our stories. Let me explain. So Romanticism, it says, is at its core a willingness to trust in feelings and instinct as supreme guides to life and a corresponding suspicion of reason and analysis. It points out how we expect that in relation to love, the romantics believe that passionate emotions will reliably guide us to a partner who can provide us with 50 years or so of intimate happiness. This belief alone can influence life choices away from possibly suitable mates 
unless the passionate chemistry and euphoric infatuation is present. These are major life choices, made not on reason, but on the heart and the chemicals that cause the feelings of passion to flare. This belief literally changes life trajectories, writes life stories for you. As it applies to work, the romantic mindset is one that suggests that all people will feel a pull toward a specific and meaningful vocation, holding a passion for something they must follow. When I read this section, it was almost a relief to accept the opposing and classical view that not all should look to their instincts to solve the problem of what one should be doing with their life on a productive basis. Rather, it accepts the understanding that all work will have moments of tedium and frustration and that the idea of an ideal job is folly. Now, like most things, I usually come down somewhere in the middle of these topics. I most certainly believe that some people are very much driven by a clear vision of what they want to do. They feel destiny tug and must follow, and many most certainly build their dream jobs through the sheer determination of their own vision and persistence. I've seen it happen. I've done it. I personally know a great many coaches and people who believe in the romantic approach to the story of life. It's often taught that we must follow our dreams and shoot for the stars, right? It's a common refrain. In fact, it's become part of the American dream. But it must also be said that I know just as many who are desperately seeking to find that passion for a vocation, that intuition that will lead them to their greatness, that clarity of purpose toward the perfect job. Because culturally, this romantic approach to vocation is espoused so strongly that to not find it for many is to interpret failure. People in their 40s still not certain what they were supposed to be when they grew up and feeling like they missed the boat. Just this past week, a woman in a Facebook group that I'm a part of was bemoaning the fact that she needed to take time off of work to find her direction, to find her passion, and she just wasn't sure she could find it. The reason the classic train of thought felt liberating was that it gave all of those people who've never felt a single, focused, passionate longing toward a specific vocation a get-out-of-romantic-jail-free card. Good news! <laughs> Not every life story needs to be crafted around a passionate, romantic idea of foreordained purpose. That's just one lens. If you're not feeling it, the classic lens allows for great meaning and honor in all walks of life. Life from a classic perspective isn't about constant thrill and passion, but fulfillment in and an appreciation for the slow and messy process of life rather than the sudden impulses of emotion. So, stories can be told from the romantic perspective, stories of intuition, of love solving all, but also it can create unreal hopes that bind us to the dangers of feeling that we must obey instincts in love, work, and life, rather than considering such classic traditions as the idea of intense frailties of our human nature, and that our emotions often overpower our better judgment. In love, classicism counsels, quote, a gracious acceptance of the madness inside each partner. It knows that ecstasy cannot last and that the basis of all good relationships must be tolerance and mutual sympathy, unquote. Classicism regards domestic life and chores as deeply worthy of care and effort. It suggests that financial considerations in choosing a marriage partner are not unworthy and unromantic, but necessary consideration as it plays a role in the, quote, good life. The article is much more detailed, and it's fascinating to compare the two different life approaches. 
Your lenses will lead you toward one side or the other, or maybe you'll be sitting somewhere in the middle with me. But depending upon your other lenses, the breakout of how much romanticism and how much classicism you agree with is an individual creation, another set of lenses. Our stories, the most powerful ones, are the ones we create in our own heads. This is huge. Ryan Clarkin said, the quality of your life is determined by the quality of the conversations going on in your own mind. Now that is a powerful statement. The stories going on in our minds are stories based upon our cultural eye, based upon learned or adopted attitudes, like Romanticism's idea that we should follow our instincts, or Classicism's deep mistrust of instinct and the missteps of the human mind. What you believe gives you the framework for how you position your story which often then creates a space of judgment about the success or failure of your story. Then that judgment gets replayed over and over in our minds. Let's get into some specifics. If you've been raised in a culture where, say, eating dogs is considered normal dinner fare, then your interpretation of a dog barbecue, which I saw something online about that the other day, may not raise your eyebrows. On the other hand, if you're from a culture where dogs are considered beloved pets and family members, then eating a dog might not only seem like vomit-worthy discussion, but anyone who would eat a dog may be considered cruel and disgusting as you look through your own cultural lens. If you come from a family where everyone went to an Ivy League school, and only the highest level of education will do, to choose a trade school may feel like a failure because of familial expectations, and your judgments of yourself and others will most likely be tainted by those lenses and expectations, when in reality, the labels you place on such a situation can only make you feel inferior or superior if you assign them and buy into that value assignment. If you come from a family where modesty is strictly adhered and taught as a must-do, then you're likely to have judgments about people or families who do not adopt your same dress code. These concepts get pulled into the stories that we create about other people and into the stories that we create about ourselves, often providing labels of good or bad, right or wrong. But all are created due to the lenses we look through. I'm sure you guys are getting the idea by now. I want to propose, as I have done before, that our stories are not fact but a fluid interpretation based on fluid concepts that can be reframed. If you've often felt like a failure because you couldn't find a particular job that knocked your socks off, the romantic notions provide that you've missed something. The classic notion provides that you've not missed anything. On the contrary, if you've found meaning in honest work that has good days and bad days, that you're pretty darn normal. I don't provide this as an excuse for those who know they have a dream and are dancing around the fear of moving forward. I provide this concept for those who genuinely have just never felt passionately drawn to a particular purpose. If you need permission to be okay with that, classicism gives it to you. Tell your tale from a classic perspective because truly you're creating your own reality every day with the stories. And if you're feeling inferior or self-doubt because you haven't found that passionate role to step into, you can change the lens. If one lens makes you feel inadequate or shameful, there are other lenses through which to view your story that are also perfectly legitimate so that you can see it in a healthy way. 
So how does this help you in reframing your story? The fourth step in the process of reframing a story after accepting your story, which is step one, being able to tell it, which is step two, and finding the meaning in the things you've experienced, which is step three, is to start to take it apart with the realization that the power you have assigned to the events in your story is determined by your lenses. Okay, here are a few questions to help you consider this idea. And you may want to write them down and consider them on your own time or stop the podcast and consider them one at a time. But these are the questions to help you sort of break through. Look at your story, whichever story you're trying to reframe. What lenses have you been looking through that have defined the part of your story that bothers you? Now take a look at where did those lenses come from? Where did you get them? The next question is, is there a possibility that the thing you are absolutely sure is fact isn't really fact if you shift the lens? Now, how does your story change if you look through someone else's lens or lenses, maybe another character in your story? How do the unfulfilled life expectations programmed into you by your culture, religion, gender, family, etc., How do those affect your current self-perception? Now, what would happen if the expectations didn't exist? What would your life feel like without them? Would you feel better or worse? Are those expectations making you feel um, inadequate or shameful? How would your self-perception change without them? How would your life story change? Were the people involved in your story doing the best they could at the time? Consider their lenses. How might they have seen the situation? Now, admittedly, that's a hard one because we have no way of truly understanding another person's lenses. But if you had been in their shoes, would you have behaved as they did? And what do you feel for the other parties in your story? This is something to consider, too, as you're trying to reframe. You know, do you feel hate? Do you feel anger? Empathy? you feel nothing at all? Fear? Understanding? Sadness? Forgiveness? The next thing I want you to do is think about, do those feelings serve you? Does feeling that way about them hurt them or does it hurt you? Or does it feel good? Is it healthy? Okay, that's a whole list of questions. But these are the questions that are going to help you take a closer look at different ways to view this story that you that you're working on. So as an example, Let's look at the breakdown of my lenses in my story. The lenses I wear include a staunch religious upbringing involving strong ethics, morals, and family values. As a member of the LDS Church, family is of predominant import. We don't marry until death do you part. We marry in a special ceremony that seals us to our spouse for all eternity. We believe in family, in morality, in love, and service. Now, with this lens, there are a great many right and wrongs. My family lens is one that is strongly based in these same principles. My grandparents stayed married. My parents stayed married. Most of my siblings, cousins, aunts, and uncles are still with their original spouses. Now, I'm directly addressing this particular part of these lenses because they have to do with my issues of divorce, right? So, of course, there are a lot of other aspects of those lenses, but I'm dealing with the marriage one. (laughs) 
So with these two lenses and living in a community in which these same values are espoused, the decision for my first divorce was gigantic, not something that I had taken lightly. The decision for my second divorce was absolutely mortifying. How could I have been divorced twice? It's hard to even say out loud. Now the disillusion of my third marriage filled me with almost a hands in the air, holy crap, there is no way to recover from this shame. Who is the biggest loser that gets divorced three times? Everyone will think I am so broken. Now, we've been discussing how we assign value to our life stories according to our lenses. But at first felt like shame and failure. I was sure never to recover from. When I stopped and started doing this work and took time to consider the perspectives or lens shifts that allow for growth and learning through these experiences, rather than creating a story in my own head about the fear of being seen as a failure and fear of judgment and disgrace in my own culture. Once I removed my own feelings of victimhood, shame, and fear of what others were gonna think of me, and I'll be honest, I still struggle with that one occasionally. But I have no control over the lens of others, but I do have the ability to realize that while my life trajectory was not ideal in my culture, it did not and does not have anything to do with my self-worth. I fully realize that this was my story, my issue, and we have all have our own stories and we all have our stories around our stories, but it's these that we need to make peace with because they are our own stories around the events in our lives. We are the creators. And so we can recreate the ones that make us feel small and fearful and ashamed or unhappy. Now, I knew the inside scoop about what had happened in my marriages. I knew I had stood up against abuse, that I had stood back up after abandonment, that I had made brave choices not to stay in situations that made me unhappy. I knew I had fought hard to work out every relationship, that I had tried to love well. The reality of my story was one of strength and courage, and it was one of trying hard, of making mistakes sometimes, but always of doing my best with whatever I was dealing with at the time. And sometimes those were limited capabilities, but we're all at different places at different times in our lives. And none of those things are shameful. They are all things to be celebrated, strength and trying, giving everything you've got, I also got to accept the mistakes that I made as learning experiences. I figured out that the feelings of shame I was feeling came from cultural, religious, and familial expectations within those realms, but I was creating the story of self-consciousness over my life trajectory, which created self-doubt. So here's the key. Because I know these lenses are mine due to nurture, not fact. There is a fluidity to interpretation that allows for me to take the lenses off for a minute and allow myself to see my story with less judgment. Now, let me be clear. There were not people in my culture or religion or family who were to my face telling me that I was a loser. This was all my own self-consciousness and the stories of failure and fear of judgment that I created within my own mind. My discomfort with my own story. But this is where shame resides, in our own minds. And we create our own level of discomfort or acceptance of our stories in our own minds. And that's what we're trying to get to here is an acceptance of those, a true deep down acceptance of where we've been, a kindness, a gentleness, a mercy 
for ourselves with the things that haven't gone right. I shared an example in the first step of the workshop series, but it so clearly shows lenses that I'm going to bring it up one more time. It was the example of the different lenses between the Native Americans and those who were moving into the new land, conquering and developing it. The differences in attitudes toward nature between Native Americans and the settlers are just opposite. While one culture held great reverence for the land and the circle of life involved in the natural system, the other considered a good life to be one of taming the land, expanding and clearing the land, building edifices to call sacred rather than finding the sacred in the mountains or the wildlife. Depending upon which culture you were born in, a good life meant something very different. Two different sets of cultural lenses defined a completely different way of approaching the same situation. Now, each felt strongly that their way was correct. But what if you had been a Native American who favored expansion and conquering? You may have been exiled from your tribe, but did your approach diminish your self-worth? Not to the settlers and expansionists. What if you had arrived on a ship from England and aligned more strongly with the ways of the Native Americans and their deep respect for the land and the needless slaughtering of millions of bison turned your stomach? Did that make you a bad person? Certainly not to the Native Americans. It's all a matter of perspective and lenses. This process of considering honestly the lenses you wear, allowing for the lenses the others in your story may wear, and taking a step back to reconsider the story with these different insights is often a crucial step to understanding. And this often allows for an opening of your heart, acceptance beyond yourself, and often creates a space for finding a different meaning to your story. Now, if you have managed in the first three steps to come to love your story and to find your peace, and this fourth step isn't necessarily something that you need to do. It's possible. It's possible that at any point in this process, you can have arrived at where you need to be. But this is an important step for opening your mind, your perception, considering the other people in your story, considering the depths of where you get your perspectives, your rights and wrongs, the reasons that your stories look like they do, the reason you pass judgment on yourself the way you do. So, the concept is intriguing. While these lenses may seem an awful lot like simple perspectives, they're more than that. So as you consider yours, let me clarify a couple of points. The first one is lenses can be perspectives and perspective shifts, such as simply choosing to focus on the positive, those rose-colored glasses we talked about. But the other one is that lenses are also actual belief systems that we hold due to our nurture that define life in a much broader sense for us. We get into the moral codes and the actual basis for the reasons that we see things the way that we do. This is the why we usually have the perspectives that we do. This is why something seems bad or good. In the book, The Five People You Meet in Heaven, the main character received a wound while fighting in the war. He's shot in the leg and for the rest of his life he limps. He can no longer run, jump, or do the things he used to do. And he spends the rest of his life looking through the lens of shame that he isn't whole and anger that he was shot. And when he dies, one of the people he meets is his captain who explains to him a whole new view of the event. Sacrifice isn't something to be ashamed of, he says. It's something to be proud of. Sacrifice is the noblest thing we do. 
Unquote. The situation has not changed, but the lens has, the perspective has. Just for a minute, when you allow for a shift of perspective, these considerations or lenses start to change things. They increase our capacity for coping, understanding, and assigning meaning. What if a child's death isn't just loss, but freedom from his depression and unhappiness? If the loss of the happily ever after you were supposed to have isn't about the unfairness of a cheating partner and the lens of victimhood, but about the opportunity to move into healthy spaces of love? What if the job you lost isn't about fear and shame that often surround times of unemployment, as much as it is about moving on to the next opportunity that's better for your life? We can mope or we can look up toward the light. We always have that option. We can swap out lenses in order to increase our understanding of ourselves and others. We can consider that there are more lenses and perspectives and ways of seeing the world than just the ones that we've been given. And that means that there's room for reframing, that there are other ways of seeing a good life. We all get really attached to what we're sure is the only real truth. But if you do the work with an open consideration of your lenses and the lenses of others, you find the freedom. I'll end with a quote from Martha Beck, internationally renowned life coach. She says, quote, the past doesn't exist except as a memory, a mental story. And though past events aren't changeable, your stories about them are. You can act now to transform the way you tell the story of your past, ultimately making it a stalwart protector for your future, unquote. You've got this. Take the steps one at a time, and if you find yourself wishing there was a coach to assist along the way, drop me a line. We have coaching programs. Also, pass this podcast series along to someone today who might find great relief in learning how to reframe their stories. Do a little good in the world and share the love. Go to www.loveyourstorypodcast.com and sign up for the free mini ebook on the five steps for reframing the parts of your story that feel broken. That's a print out of all of these five steps with a few bullet points for remembering and working on. They can serve as notes on this process that we're going through in this series. And we'll see you next week for the last step of the process, step number five, the final reframe. Have a good week. <music>